Well, this is uh, Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is Eric Whitehead, uh, our engineer who is at the control panel. The great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz, and Phil Grant, who edits our almost daily Grant's. And uh, But we are not alone today. With us from across the Atlantic Ocean is Mervyn King, Baron King of Lothbury, Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the British Empire, and uh, a member of the Order of the Garter. Hey, what's happening, Mervyn? <laughs> this is an unprecedented series of events. It's what I call radical uncertainty. Well, I don't think any, three months ago, no one could have imagined that we'd be sitting here discussing over the telephone why the world economy is being deliberately shut down by governments in order to battle a virus that we didn't know existed three months ago. So this, these are events that you can't easily imagine in advance. And even if you can imagine that might one day be a, a virus and, and a pandemic, you can't ever know in advance what kind of virus it will be, how it will spread through the population, how serious it will be, and perhaps most importantly of all, how people will respond yes. to the measures that are put in place. So you know, unlike most traditional scientific phenomena, such as the planets orbiting around the sun, on this occasion, we don't know the rules of the game and how the virus will develop, whether it will mutate or not. Well, uh, there's no, basis, it's, it's, for, it's, there's no basis for assuming this is going to be unchanging. And unlike the planets going around the sun, what we believe about it influences the outcome. Right. Mervyn, it seems to me this might present uh, a workable title for a splendid new work of nonfiction. What do you think? We can call it Radical Uncertainty? <laughs> I think you couldn't do better than yes. turning well, let, let the us time get... that everyone now has at home to reading a book called Radical Uncertainty yes. let by us get John down, Kay and let, myself. Let us get down to commerce here. There's so little commerce being conducted in the world where we should not pass up this opportunity to promote some actual ringing of the cash register. So I have in my hand uh, Radical Uncertainty Beyond Decision, decision sorry, Decision Making Beyond the Numbers by uh, John Kay and uh, our guest today, Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England. So, Mervyn, the, the question that uh, I ask you all too flippantly, but what must be asked now in the context of your wonderful book is, quote, what is going on here, close quote, that being uh, the, uh, the threshold question for so many good things. Is it merely a financial event? Uh, and if we can't know about it, how can we handicap it? So this question of what, have, what is going on here, it sounds banal, but, but it isn't. I mean, deep down, this is the question one has to ask about almost every unique event that we confront and major economic and financial decision. And what you need to respond to that is a, a story, a narrative, which encapsulates our knowledge and is always being challenged. Is this the right way of thinking about the problem? And it evolves over time. What you have to avoid, I think, what I would call black box models, which don't really help you understand or think about the phenomenon, but merely produce a number. Yeah, right. And models can be very helpful in giving you insights into a problem, in helping you understand something that you didn't really understand before. But what economic models are not good at doing is being literally a description of how the world works. Marvin, let, let, yeah, let me ask you this. Uh, this, this. In my experience in writing a book, you always learn so much about the thing you thought enough about to write the book uh, about. Uh, wait, let's do this again. Ah, yes, in, in, absolutely in, right. right. Okay, so let me ask, how might you have conducted policy of the Bank of England differently, knowing what you now know, having written this fine book? So uh, during the financial crisis, we, we were making things up as we 
went along. And after the event, when we really stabilized the banking system at the beginning of 2019, sorry, 2009, I then had the chance really to go back and read a lot more about what people wrote in the 1930s. And what I realized was that we, it was crucial that we recognize the significance of what I call radical uncertainty. But the idea that events that are happening are either very rare events, but it's actually occurred. They are things which we didn't even imagine before and didn't understand before, which is why you have to ask the question, what is going on here? And actually during 2008, we did ask ourselves what is going on here. And what was important about that was that many of the banks were saying, this is just a liquidity problem. If only you just lend us more, that will be the end of the problem. Now, it was important to tackle the symptoms of the problem, which was the liquidity issue. We did that. But right through 2008, our answer to the question, what is going on here, was that people who lent to banks, whether it be households or other you know, hedge funds or other financial institutions had lost confidence in the solvency of the banks. They were undercapitalized. And we, the answer to our question, what is going on here, was to say, until we recapitalize the banking system, we will not get out of this problem. And that's what the US and the UK led the world in doing. And we did get out of the problem by resolving the banking issues in the first half of 2009. Now, that didn't solve all the economic problems, but it did solve the banking crisis. I'm not sure, therefore, whether in terms of the financial crisis, I would have done things rather differently. But certainly what I would have done is that before the financial crisis, instead of having a very large unit, which was allegedly monitoring financial risks, what happened was that every six months when we produced our financial stability report, a team of people would come in and say, well, you know, we've identified 37 different risks that we are worried about in the financial system. What we didn't have, which is what I would want to do now, is a very small group of senior and experienced people who'd seen financial markets over a long period ask the question, what is going on here? And worrying about the one thing that really could bring down the system, not lots and lots of different risks, yeah. but the thing that was going on that could bring down the system. And I'd want to focus on that as the main issue in financial stability to look at, Mervyn, as, rather than pretend that we were scanning the horizon for every kind of risk right. that might occur. Mervyn, as, as we speak, the news has crossed the wires that uh, Andrew Bailey, your uh, successor plus one as governor of the Bank of England, has announced that uh, the bank will make uh, unlimited quantities of money available to the economy through some new commercial paper facility. And yes. uh, in response to questions from, I guess, the press or from his own comment, he said uh, at one point, um, the reason for that is that we don't know. Uh, do you approve of that uh, confession of ignorance? I, I do, absolutely. <clears throat> I think Andrew Bailey is exactly the right person to deal with these problems at this time at the bank. Let me, let me, I remember in yeah, 2008 sorry. when the Royal Bank of Scotland came in one day, or rang up rather, and said, we can't get to the end of the day. And we knew exactly what we had to do because we couldn't afford to allow the entire banking system to go. And if the Royal Bank of Scotland had gone, people would have lost confidence in the other uh, high street banks. So we lent it money. And Andrew Bailey, I put in charge of the handling of that facility with Royal Bank of Scotland. And essentially, from that day onwards, he was the de facto yeah. prudential regulator of the UK banking system. He's exactly the right person to handle a crisis of this kind. And the reason is that he's prepared to say, we 
don't know. Ah, excellent. I think in many ways this is the most important thing, to be willing and able to say. That doesn't mean to say you don't take action. It's not a, a, re a reason for inaction. It's a reason for not pretending to yourself that some number is the answer. There's another very recent example of this, which took place last week in the UK. One thing which I think has been very successful in Britain are the daily press conferences, which involve the prime minister, but on either side of him are the chief scientist and the chief medical officer. What they do is don't, they don't give the public some number out of a black box computer model. They explain what we know and what we don't know. And the chief medical officer was asked last week you know, by a, a journalist, how many people will die? And he said, we don't know. And I'm not going to put into the public domain highly speculative numbers. Now, the way to build up confidence in the public is to treat them as adults. And that is, people understand that the chief scientist right. and the chief medical officer, we, not least as well the prime minister, they can't know the answers to how this, where this virus will go. What they want to be told is, we've learned something since last week, we've updated our beliefs about it, and now we're changing our response. Mervyn, may, may I ask this? Let me ask this about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, as you put it, the narrative to the current uh, financial difficulties, uh, if they can be abstracted from the pandemic. Uh, for 10 years or thereabouts, uh, central banks of the world have taken it into their power to uh, guide, indeed, some might say, Grants has said, to suppress or to manipulate what is arguably the most sensitive and important price in capitalism, which is the rate at which we discount future cash flows, uh, measure financial risk, and uh, set investment hurdle rates. That rate of interest, on average, has been under the thumb of our, uh, to be sure, dedicated public servants. Arguably, uh, the price set by the central banks has been, certainly it's a controversial price, on the evidence of the massive buildup in financial leverage in the American corporate and financial sectors, not the banks, mind you, but elsewhere, that price has been too low. And is it not possible that the consequence of the manipulation of the rate of interest has led to, as it were, since we're all epidemiologists now, a compromise in the corporate immune system such that an exogenous shock like this has dealt a blow to finance, has instituted a panic such that might not have occurred had risk been priced in the market and rather than through administrative means. This episode of Current Yield is brought to you by uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Subscribe. Now back to our discussion with Murphy King. So I think it's important to distinguish between the phenomenon you describe, which I think is, is absolutely right, that we have not taken the measures which would have enabled interest rates to remain at what I would think of as the appropriate level, versus the second and quite different issue, which is how to handle the uh, the COVID-19 virus issue. Now, on the first one, on, on interest rates, I think that one of the problems has been that too many governments and too many people believe that the central bank is the only game in town. And therefore, central banks have been seen as the answer to every issue that we face. But governments haven't taken the appropriate steps to rebalance their economies. And the result has been that central banks have come under pressure to maintain aggregate demand by continuously cutting interest rates. That is not a sustainable long-run policy, and it's damaging to the economy. That's where we found ourselves when the virus occurred. And up to that point, I quite agree with you. Now that the virus problem has arisen, it seems to me we've got a quite different issue. I don't think interest rate cuts are the answer to this at all. They, they may provide some sense of reassurance. They may give the impression that central banks are in the action. But actually, the most important thing that central banks can do now now, I think, is to help the entire economy deal with a, a very sudden cash flow problem. Yeah. So the first issue is the cash flow problem, that there are many businesses, large and small, and many individuals who suddenly find their receipts falling to zero. 
classic example would be someone, an actor working in a theatre that's been shut, a waiter working in a restaurant that's no longer able to open, a person, a personal trainer working in a gym that's been forced to close. These are people who desperately need help with their cash flow. And I think there is a case in current circumstances for the government lending either directly or through the banking system to such entities and uh, in order to deal with the cash flow problem. Mervyn, By the way, I, uh, the simplest yeah. way to do that is just to defer tax payments. Mervyn, uh, the second yeah. issue we'll have to confront, I think, is compensation. But the, the, the events that are going on will require the burden of this to be shared among the population as a whole. And uh, that's something which governments will need to spend a bit of time thinking carefully about. The first priority is deal with the cash flow problem and then come back to ask the question, what sort of compensation is appropriate? Mervyn, uh, in, last year, I think, in the UK, uh, an author named Francis Coppola produced a book called uh, the, the Case for People's Quantitative Easing. And the title, uh, much as your title, describes exactly the contents of the book. And uh, it turns out to be a very well-timed volume. And in my country, uh, airlines en masse have approached the Treasury and said, we must be helped. We need help because uh, people aren't flying and we can't stay in business. In the past 10 years, uh, it has been reported these airlines uh, allocated 96% of their free cash flow to the repurchase of their shares in the open market. Now, this raises the question of the, uh, of the, 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 the moral content, so to speak, of this plea. Now, if are, is, is the plea for people's QE any less valid than the plea to these airlines that have levered themselves up and now are unable to uh, bridge what is, a, to be sure, a very surprising and unexpected uh, crisis? And if the case for people's QE is, is morally defensible and perhaps in a political election year compelling, where does this leave us next year and the year after and the year after that? So I think I would, and here there are some similarities with the financial crisis. The airlines are in a similar position to the banks in 2008, uh, and they're both important to the operation of the economy. I think the, arguably the banking system more so, but they, they both are. The, the cash flow problem has arisen. It's certainly arguable that the airlines overpaid executives, paid out too much to shareholders. But we're in, we're in the position we're in now. So the cash flow problem is one that does justify help. I don't think it makes sense to single out particular sectors who are big enough and can shout loudest enough. I think we ought to be very concerned about self-employed individuals who don't have a, a, a collective organization to, to obtain help. But that's, that's very important. But just as with the bank, when we lent money to the bank, but forced them to repay it, the question of the, whether there is any permanent transfer to the airlines is a quite separate question from the one of whether it makes sense to provide cash flow help now. And I think it is important to provide the cash flow now. And then we can take our time a little bit to think through various schemes that will compensate everyone in the economy in some appropriate way. It's not just the airlines that are suffering from this. Every business is. The cash flow problems are primarily, I think, for businesses, including self-employed individuals. I'm not enthusiastic about handing out $1,000 to every citizen. I don't think that deals with the cash flow problems because it's too small for many people who, whose incomes have literally fallen to zero. And it's too big in the sense that, you know, think of myself, 
at home now. I don't need $1,000 in cash now. I want to be able to get back to work and to earn more again, but I'm stuck at home. But giving me $1,000 isn't going to help me. And it's not any reason at all why in the long run, I should get the same cash benefit as people who need it more. So I don't think people's QE makes any sense, either intellectually in terms of a, it's not a new method of, um, of, of relaxing monetary policy. It's a, a question of whether the government feels that the right thing to do now is to make a relatively small payment to everyone across the board. We, it's not the case that we want people to rush out and spend this, this time. We're not facing a recession in the normal sense. Around the world, governments are deliberately contracting the economy to deal with the virus. And we've got to find a way of coping with this short-run contraction of activity, but then thinking through what we will want to do when we come out the other side. And that is one that will take a little bit more time to think about. And the benefits of any interest rate cut will be seen in the longer run, not in the short run. What central banks should be focusing on now is not so much interest rate cut, but actually the measures to deal with cash flow, the sort of thing that you refer to Andrew Bailey announcing today. Yeah. So the, uh, the airlines, of course, uh, could avail themselves of the bankruptcy courts. They've been there before and they would keep flying. What's, what's wrong with, uh, for the sake of, the, of moral clarity, having these over-encumbered, badly managed businesses uh, present themselves to the bankruptcy court and... Uh, and reorganize. So I think the answer is, is, is the following, Jim, which is there's been a terrible loss of confidence. And we don't really know how to measure sentiment yeah. and to think about what's happening in confidence at present. What I, so I don't think you want to push businesses into bankruptcy now. What you want to do is to find a temporary way through this, but not commit yourself today to making permanent transfers to institutions that may need to be reorganized and in some cases disappear. So it's, this is certainly not the moment, I think to make promises of the kind that no business will be allowed to fail, which is what President Macron did in France. Yes, right. The reason is that tens of thousands of businesses normally fail every year. But what you don't want to do is to say, of course, businesses fail every year, so we're not going to protect them. We've got to offer support, but you mustn't give a guarantee that in the long run, all businesses will necessarily survive. It's a question of together, coming together to pull through this. And I think a national effort is required in order to sustain sufficient confidence, both in the health service and the way we handle this, but also in the economy, and leave for the time being the question of whether or not businesses will be permanently rescued or not. You know, there's a, there's a, a problem, uh, certainly in my country, and I think in many other countries, with what has now come to be called the zombification of corporate enterprise. With, um, uh, absolutely. It's a major issue. So pers- persistent, if the persistent, virus hasn't occurred, yeah. If the virus hadn't occurred, I would have said that one of the biggest challenges to the world economy was the de-zombification of both businesses and, in many cases, some banks. But isn't this the trap of an activist uh, monetary policy, the, uh, the post-2009 template in which if the stock market's down 15 or 20 percent, suddenly the central bank clears its throat, uh, cuts rates. Uh, there is an institutional dread of liquidation of failure that uh, it seems to me has perpetuated these ultra-low rates, therefore given rise to this stifling uh, and ultimately destructive uh, hyper-leverage and has led us to where we are. It's, 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 how do you get out of it? So I, I, it's going to be extremely difficult now. If we go back three months, what I was arguing at that point was that governments really had to take measures, both in order to allow businesses that were 
not viable to fail, to force banks to recognize losses on their, the asset side of their balance sheet, to recapitalize if necessary. All of this, I think, is a particular problem in Europe and much of the rest of the world. I think it's much less a problem in the United States. That was one first thing that was really crucial. The second was to recognize that there was a lot of capacity, excess capacity in certain sectors and industries around the world. I mean, the German export sector has excess capacity. Chinese need to switch more to domestic demand. Around the world, we've got a very serious imbalance between different sectors and industries. That's not a problem that can be dealt with by cuts in interest rates or central bank monetary stimulus. And I think that although the actions that were taken in 2008, 9, even 2010 were absolutely justified and right, we, we had got to a position by the time I left the bank in 2013 where the right speech from the central bank governor was to say we can do no more. Because if we do get a big shock, we will need to jump into action again. But we need to rebalance our economies, and that's a function of governments, not central banks. Exchange rates have been kept from moving far too much. But by not doing that, by the fact that governments have been failed, really, to take the appropriate action, we now enter this economic crisis as a result of the COVID-19 virus in a position where we've got the short-term damage done by the virus that's come right on top of uh, an imbalance in the world economy that has prevented growth from returning to normal and pushed interest rates down to unsustainably low levels. And it's going to be extremely difficult to get out of both of these problems. It will take, I think, some while. And the answer isn't, to every piece of bad news, the answer isn't cut interest rates. Yes, it is. Um, and well, that's that's, exact, that's exactly the answer to every piece of bad news, at least in this country, for 10 years. And I think what we have to get away from, from that and to recognize that if you want to use interest rates as a powerful monetary policy tool, which they are, you cannot claim that it's the solution to every particular problem. It isn't. It's a temporary policy instrument. It's useful in the short run, but it isn't, doesn't deal with long-run problems. And we had a serious long-run problem, which we didn't tackle. Now the virus has come along, and the issue at present is not how to boost demand, because we're actually trying to stop people from spending by telling them to stay at home and avoid shops and restaurants and theatres. What we want to do is to get through this short-term problem by dealing with the cash flow issues, by dealing with the health problem. We don't want to exacerbate the loss of confidence that's occurred. We don't want to push businesses into bankruptcy yet. But then we need to think through what system we will have for sharing the losses that have arisen as a direct result of the virus from the losses that would have occurred in businesses that were no longer really viable. Well, doesn't that's, that's a very yeah. difficult challenge, but it's one that we need to confront. Right. But uh, uh, the wonder of very low interest rates and of uh, these uh, uh, seemingly ever so tolerant bond markets, except like today, uh, has been that uh, it is uh, apparent that uh, government uh, spending exacts no cost. Uh, the bond market uh, soaks in every single demand. And uh, this thing called modern monetary theory has gone from Abel Lerner's intellectual plaything uh, to uh, an actual living presence. I see in, in, in your book, Mervyn, you uh, lightheartedly quote uh, the fellow in Moliere's play who discovers after 40 years that he can speak prose. Well, we are discovering, yes. uh, Donald Trump's discovering that monetary, modern monetary theory is something that he actually um, is implementing even though he can't spell it, modern monetary theory. And that entails uh, the issuance of debt uh, uh, seemingly without uh, constriction, without uh, restraint, and uh, the soaking up of that debt through central bank action until such time as the CPI, mind you, only the CPI moves, Consumer Price Index. So 
given that MMT is here in fact, if not in name, what does that mean for the world? And what does that mean for the prospects of a new wave of government prudence? So I, I don't like modern monetary theory because I think it's no longer, it isn't modern. It's not particularly monetary, and it isn't a theory. What it is, is a statement that if the government wants to spend without limit, then the central bank can print money and buy the government bonds which are issued to finance that higher government spending. Now, put that way, that's just a technical description of where we are today, because what we have been doing is seeing central banks create money by buying government bonds, and we've seen governments thinking about how much they wish to spend. So that it's, there's nothing new about this at all. The issue is how much money should the government spend? Uh, what's the sensible level of spending? And secondly, who gets to decide on the amount of money which the central bank prints? Now, if you hand the decision about money printing directly to government, then you can easily find yourself in a situation that many countries have been in the past in which unlimited government spending financed by money printing leads to hyperinflation. That is not a risk for the major economies in the world today because the decision on the amount of money to print is being taken by central banks, which have a mandate not to allow inflation to rise. And if inflation were to arise, I do not believe that in the G7 countries, central banks would sit idly by. They would raise interest rates to prevent the hyperinflation from taking off. But deep down, <clears throat> of course, government has to respect that. And if it turns out that governments don't respect it, we will get into trouble. I think at present, given the nature of this crisis, we cannot know how much government debt and spending will rise. But that's not a reason for not allowing it to rise. It's not a call for inaction. It's letting it to rise in order to deal with the cash flow problems of the private sector. And once we start to see the health problems improve, then I would expect the cash flow problem to reverse and government debt to be able to come back down again. Well, in this, in this, in this country, government uh, debt has gone up uh, in times of distress, in times of prosperity. Uh, never before have ten years uh, offered the prospect of so much debt, uh, uh, you know, to come, or the past ten years so much debt in a time of business expanding. So uh, the, the words that struck me today in the Bank of England's press release was the word was unlimited, unlimited QE for large company financing. Unlimited is a very powerful and heady word for a politician. This is being backed and supported by the UK government. Right. But I think what they want people to understand is that they should be they should be confident now that the government will ensure that their cash flow problems will not be the cause of an immediate bankruptcy. What they won't know is how the long-run costs of this will be shared amongst the community. That will take more time to resolve. But the key thing here is just to think about who is taking the decision. In wartime, when Britain fought the Second World War, the ratio of our national debt to GDP rose dramatically and reached, at the end of the, of the war, 250%. The ratio is now well below 100%. Now, one of the benefits of having sensible fiscal policy and a gradually declining ratio of national debt to GDP in normal times is precisely to give you both the room and to give markets confidence that when something dreadful happens like this, it's appropriate to respond by borrowing more. But it can only work and will only work in situations where governments have the credibility to be able to say, this is an unprecedented set of circumstances. We will need to expand public borrowing. We do not know by how much. 
but we will do it by what we think is the right amount to deal with the cash flow problems here, and then we will be able to return to a normal fiscal policy and in time, gradually, again, reduce the ratio of national debt to GDP. That is why it was so important in the past, and in the UK I think we had it, to have a fiscal policy which made absolutely clear that the government was not complacent about where the budget deficit was or what was happening to the size of national debt. Well, here in, in, in America, here in America, Mervyn, we are ever so much more advanced. The complacency happens to be uh, uh, the principle. And I think that one, one of the things I've seen in handling this crisis has been a difference in tone between the UK government and its chief scientist and chief medical officer, who have been very honest, said, this is what we know, this is what we don't. What they have not done is to say, we will, you know, act as more rapidly than any other country in the world. There is no tone of self-congratulation in the UK response to this, whereas seeing some of the press conferences and remarks made by politicians in the United States, it's turned a bit into a political issue, and people are wanting to claim credit for things. Well, it, what we need now is a national response yeah. where each individual has their own job to do, and, and not, not a sense of self-congratulation. I, I am rather proud of the UK response to this because I think it's been sensible in terms of how you make decisions in the shadow of radical uncertainty. So uh, 200 uh, years ago uh, in your country, there was a, a central bank director called Jeremiah Harmon. Jeremiah Harmon. Yes. And he was hauled up for a, a parliamentary committee to uh, hash out the bank's response to uh, a panic of 1825, which was, uh, you tell me, I, I just, uh, I'm a historical tourist, but as I read about it, it struck me as perhaps the most severe panic in the entire 19th century. So here, so Harmon said, uh, well, we, at the bank, we just did everything. We pulled out the stuff. He said, we, we, um, we actually, he said, we actually lent against merchandise. Yeah, it's against, this is the age of, uh, of uh, central bank orthodoxy. We lent against things. And he said that, uh, short by uh, every possible means consistent with the safety of the bank. And we were not upon some occasions over nice, seeing the dreadful state Indeed. in which the public were. We were not over nice. We yeah. rendered every assistance in our power. So uh, that is the case for pulling out the stops in a time such as this. However, if the stops were pulled out in the 10 years preceding such a time as this, it is a very different cleanup problem. And we at Grants have likened the pricing of credit in this country to, uh, uh, to an episode that occurred in 1974 at a baseball stadium in Cleveland. It's a Cleveland Memorial Stadium. And uh, the Indians were a very poor team. And to get uh, customers through the door to the turnstiles, the, uh, the, the management of the baseball team offered beer for sale at 10 cents a cup, 10 cents a cup. And as you can imagine, uh, by the eighth or ninth inning, the fans were just taking the game. They were going out in the field, introducing themselves to the players, setting off fireworks. <laughs> it was, and uh, and uh, so uh, we say, we at Grants say, Mervyn, that, uh, uh, that credit in its way is as volatile a substance as is Genesee beer. Not a very good beer, that's by the by. And the mispricing of credit, arguably, with the, uh, not only with the sanction, but with the insistence of the Federal Reserve System, has been akin to dime beers for all this time. And now we have the airlines, we have the hotels, we have the personal trainers. Everyone wants a piece of everyone else. And it is going to be some light show. It is. But uh, anyway, Mervyn, you are... So it's going to be very difficult to handle it. But I think the big lesson I draw from what you say, and I, I agree with what you say, 
is that we ought to think very carefully of how we can prepare just in case at some unknowable moment, an unknowable event occurs, where we do think it makes sense to pull out all the stops. And I think in the financial crisis, what we learned was that we didn't make bank pre-positioned collateral with the central bank on a scale that would have made it very easy for the central bank then to say, okay, we know the collateral you're going to bring to us. We know that you've got enough collateral that we can afford just to lend to you any money that you need to meet short-term cash calls. If we had got ourselves into that position, then I think not only would it have been straightforward for central banks to respond to the need for banks for cash, but actually, politically, it would have been much easier to explain why central banks were offering loans to the banking system, but not to small businesses. And I think Again, your point here is if only we had taken the actions that would have allowed central banks to return interest rates to a more normal level, then I think it would be easier to cope with the economic problem that we're facing now. So it's, I know it's easy to say I wouldn't start from here, but I think it's a criticism, not of what we're doing now, but of what wasn't done by government in the last 10 years. Well, we have been talking and uh, uh, very gratefully talking with uh, Mervyn King, who is the, uh, among other uh, great achievements in his life, as the co-author of Radical Uncertainty. But Mervyn, I forgot to mention the, if I may say so, the principal badge of honor you are now carrying, which is that you are a designated speaker at the Fall Grants Conference, uh, October 20th in New York. That's to say, if uh, the human race you know, continues uh, getting up in the morning and going to work. Uh, but we're looking- and, and if I survive the virus too. So far, so good. Excellent. Well, I like my chance. That's the news of this whole call. Thank, thank you, Mervyn. We'll see you in the fall. And thank you so much for talking with us today. 